I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. I feel like this is a very special episode today because we have Isaac Fitzgerald here, and, and I'm going to have to try very hard not to let him interview me. <laughs> I know that he will try to do that. So let me read his author bio for you, and we can get started. Isaac appears frequently on the Today Show and is the author of the best-selling children's book, How to Be a Pirate, as well as the author, the co-author sorry, of Pen and Ink and Knives and Ink. He lives in Brooklyn, and his debut memoir and essays is called Dirtbag Massachusetts. Welcome, Isaac. Maris, longtime listener, just thrilled to be here. Love this podcast, means the world to me. And I promise I'm doing my damnedest in situations like this not to try and flip it. So I'm not going to try and do it. You know, I have a million questions I want to ask you, but I understand we're here to talk about Dirtbag Massachusetts, so I'm here. We are, we are talking about Dirtbag Massachusetts. And so I think the first thing we have to say is shout out to Jason Diamond for that, for that title. Listen, uh, it's a story that could not be more romantic. We were driving up from New York City to Boston. We were doing an event for uh, his, his memoir, Searching for John Hughes, and they show, it's incredible. I'm like, I'm not getting an event like this. They showed The Breakfast Club on a big screen, and then I got to interview him at a theater after the showing. So the place was packed because everybody loves that movie, and it was just such a wonderful conversation. But on our way up there, we did stay in like kind of a seedy motel in the shadow of you know, Fenway Park. But on the way up, I was like, oh, the town I grew up in, Athol, Massachusetts, people call it Asshole, Massachusetts, or they call it Rat Hole, Massachusetts, but can't call a book Asshole, Massachusetts. And just like, he didn't miss a beat. He was just like, dirtbag, Massachusetts? And that's truly more, I didn't even know what the book would be. I just knew that would be the title. I mean, why wouldn't you write a book about, around that? Um, and And there is such a, aesthetic um, that that that, <laughs> that title evokes. And, and so I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, for me, 
I've lived a lot of different lives. And one of the big, you know, almost fractured moments in my life or fault line or however you want to put it was I go from this incredibly small, incredibly um, low income area in Massachusetts to then living at a boarding school. And, and, and just, just before we even make the jump to live in a rural low income area in Massachusetts is still to be in a very, very poor town in a very, very rich state. It means something different than living in certain other parts of the country. So that on its own was kind of this complex, very much money pushed up against a lack of money. But then for me to go from, I hadn't been really out of the state that much, I'd never been on a plane, to then all of a sudden be at boarding school where people were there from all over the country, and not only just all over the country, but all over the world was incredible. But what I walked into it was, and then, and then was almost forced to reckon with, this incredible pride of where I'd come from, which even before I was living in rural Massachusetts, I lived in a shelter for the unhoused, uh, which was run by socialist Catholic folks called the Catholic Worker. And my parents were, you know, much like, like hair club for men. They weren't just like members, they like believed in it too. So like they were part of this incredible community. I got to grow up in that incredible community. So I came in with what I would call you know, hindsight, dirtbag pride. I walked into this boarding school situation with dirtbag pride. Um, and then the beauty of it, you know, don't get me wrong, I had to learn many, many things. I had to figure out how to be many different versions of myself. But the beauty of that moment was I walked in with such a big chip on my shoulder and I was like, screw these rich kids, they don't know nothing. And then slowly had to learn like, oh, some of these people are actually very good, interesting individuals. And then going back to my home, and recognizing some of my friends I absolutely loved, but there's also a small mindedness that was happening there and grappling with that. So that is like the, the, the phrase dirtbag for me is still something that I carry with a lot of pride, but it's really complex. Yeah, it is. Um, and I feel like the idea of you going from one environment to another and having to do a little, I, do we call it code switching in this? Uh... No, I mean, listen, that has been a thing that folks have, that is a term. And th this is the way I describe it when this conversation comes up, because let's be honest, there's a lot of code switching that goes on throughout history through all sorts of different culture. But for me, I describe it as uh, the departed Martin Scorsese, which, which is in that movie, which itself is actually just a redo of another film. Um, but there is a moment where uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is kind of explaining his childhood where he went from like a very rich part to a very poor part, which like I said, because Massachusetts is one of the richest states in the union, but also still has these pockets of very in, like low income areas, um, is actually a very common Massachusetts or one could argue New England story. I mean, think about Maine, think about all sorts of different, th those areas. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think that's a fine phrase to use for it. But like in general, I call it like in that moment in that scene, they I think they say something along the lines of like a doily sea kid, like like those little white, white, like lace doilies, you know. So yeah, whatever that I was definitely doing a lot of doing one accent while I was at school and doing a completely different one when I came home and acting totally different ways. 
And I, I think it's so incredible that, you know, I've known about your opening sentence for quite a while, but you have this very specific um, circumstance of your childhood. And I have to imagine you've been kind of building narratives around it ever since. So tell me a little bit about how it feels to, to have put it all together and have it in print in a book. So we are running into the first, I wanna almost ask you like Maris, do you, cause full disclosure for those that are listening, Maris and I have known each other for a very long time. We've worked in the same industry for a very long time. And luckily for me, a friendship is built. So there's almost this part of me, it's like, when was the last, like, do you remember, not the last, the first time that I used that line, but the line is, uh, my parents were married when they had me just to different people. It's how I've always both talked about my childhood, but in a way deflected with it. Um, but I won't, like I said, I promise not to turn this interview around. <laughs> um, for, for me, that's the core of this collection, is how we tell ourselves stories to live, how we tell ourselves stories to get by, um, the stories that were told to me took me years, decades to unpack and figure out which was true and which was just part of something I maybe overheard as a child and then it grew into something else. Like that is the complexity. And like, that's when you really get into like, yes, nonfiction memoir, but also history in general is just, right. this is all we're doing. We're just telling each other stories. It's what we're, we're hoping to believe in. And there's a lot to unpack there. So for me, it, like, like people ask me like, oh, how long did it take you to write the book? Well, if I'd written the book when I was 25, it'd be much different than the book that I've written, which I started basically in earnest at 35 and I'm 39 now. But I've been working on the book maybe since I was eight, maybe since I was nine, because these were all stories that I was constantly trying to figure out, grapple with. Where, where do I fit into this? And that has been the ongoing process of this entire book. And where I arrive now, and that's a very important part of it for me, is it's not a fully wrapped present with a bow on top and there's a nice ending. I'm not gonna give too much away there. It's not even that there's a bat, it's just, it's a continue. I understand that this book is a dip into a conversation, into a bunch of different perspectives and different stories and then it's gonna be a dip out. And that those stories, those conversations are ongoing. But for me to have finally figured this book out, I'm not gonna lie, it, it feels really good. It feels really wonderful. It feels like something I've been working towards for a very, very long time. And so to, I don't wanna say be done with it because I'm not done with it, but to have at least this section of it put down on paper means the world to me. Oh, I love that, Isaac. And I'm asking this um, selfishly a little bit, but tell me about how you take various essays that you've written over the years and then impose a narrative structure on it so mm -hmm. that it tells a complete-ish mm -hmm. yet ongoing story. Yeah, well, first you start by swearing up and down, you're never gonna do that. <laughs> and that is, I'm 100%, that's where I started. Just for the record, I remember, I can, oh, I can so clearly tell, like I've been saying, oh, if I wrote this at 25, it'd be different, it'd be very angry, 
not that there's not anger in this book, it'd be very much like my fuck my parents forever. Whereas now the book, in my opinion, is a, a family exploding apart, but then coming back together in a totally new shape. Um, that's all true. But the other thing to say is like at 25, I didn't even want to write this. I swore up and down. I have clear memories talking to people at parties. Like, uh, like people are like, whoa, that's an inch. And I'm like, no, I never write about it. And I, don't, I think I was raised during the 90s, the 2000s. There was a lot of popular woe is me, especially yeah. from straight cis white men stories. Mm-hmm. And in, for some reason, I was just like really shying away from that. And I think part of what that is, is there was a little bit of jealousy there. I can admit that now. I can, I can see that. I was like, oh, no, 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 that's, that's, that's not for me. But in my mind, maybe somewhere deep down, I was really thinking like, oh, it's already been done and it's been done well. So my story's not worth telling. And I'm so glad that I got over it. And the only way I got over it was I sold, I did, I sold this book. This book was supposed to be a disparate collection of essays. It was supposed to be about much more about cultural moments or things in pop culture. Like the whole steady essay is a great example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm still very proud of that essay. That's why it's in there. But they were all supposed to be like that. And then as I sat down to write it, more and more I was grappling with the fact that my childhood that I kept trying to ignore was finding its way into every piece. And at some point I was going to have to acknowledge it. So that like, it's, it's, not, it's not a perfect, beautiful answer, but the answer really is like, once you start writing, that's where you're gonna find those threads. That's when you're gonna find those through lines. And I'm so happy I did. If you looked at the book proposal that in 2018, Bloomsbury was like, <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. And then what happened? I think, and don't get me wrong, in a lot of the middle moments was very fraud. And they're like, this is not what we signed up for. But through the writing, through grappling with what kept, and, and not turning away from what kept coming up, recognizing that I had to write that, I got to write this version of the books I grew up reading. But like I said, maybe don't have that perfect cookie cutter ending, which I think is what I was really pushing against. I'm glad the Hold Study essay made it in there because I I, I remember going to my first live Hold Study show yes. and feeling like there was such a contradiction, right? Like it was, little seedy, a little scummy. Um, but then the entire vibe, of course, is is stay positive, is um, celebrate, is actually have fun and enjoy yourself, even even when singing uh, about, you know, terrible tragedies. And I think that's that's how I feel about you, that you are, you know, you you write in your book about how you were in a teenage fight club and how you you are an angry young man, but you are also persistently hopeful, persistently encouraging, and like me, overly polite, maybe to a fault. So <laughs> let's talk about all of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and oh, we have we do have that in common. Man, first off, just thank you. Like, I hope you can see me, and 
this is what I love about this conversation. It's what I love about being so familiar with you and being friends with you so that we can talk about this. I hope that's okay, to, but it's just the truth is that I'm still working on taking that kind of praise, taking that kind of moment. People can't see our faces while we're doing this, but I'm wincing, but I'm also like, I do, I, I accept it and I enjoy it. And I appreciate you saying it because it makes me feel seen, which is something I'm still grappling with. But I, I, it really means so much to be read so well by somebody like yourself, so thoughtful, but I'm not gonna turn it around. Um, <laughs> the, the hold steady is a perfect place to start because I have throughout my life had an insane amount of optimism while also dealing with like very, very difficult things. And a beautiful thing for me about art, whether it be a book or a song or any, like any kind of painting, but you can see yourself in it. And when you see yourself in it, you didn't even know you were looking for it, but that moment can happen. And that's how it felt the first time I listened to Hold Steady it was like, here's a band singing songs about things that I'm very, very familiar with, which is not to say like giant, huge, like just like almost small, petty crime and like <laughs> different types of rough relationships. And it just clicked with me in such a strong way. And then, like you said, their, their, their message often like, Hey, we got to build, we're going to build something this summer. We're going to build something like that. Just like, we, we don't know what it is. And like, I came from a place like I worked at hotels, like, Oh, maybe we're, we put a boat in the water. Like we just figure things out. And so that reflection to see that in the music of Craig and Franz and all the other members of the whole city, just meant so much to me and clicked with me in such a true way. And that's the beauty of it is that, that that can be a driving force. There I am at the age of 23. I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I'm fucking up left and right. But I hear that for the first time. And all of a sudden, I, kn I know, don't get me wrong. That's not like that's the moment. I knew earlier I wanted to write, but that's one of those moments where I could feel, wait, if these assholes can figure it out. And they're telling <laughs> stories that sound a lot like my maybe I can figure it out too. And that was just such a redefining moment for me. So that like the whole study, that's why it stays in the, in the book is because that moment meant so much to me. But to move past that also is, um, is to get to kind of a philosophy of life, which is I never wanna turn away from hardship. I never wanna turn away from how fucked things are, how fucked things have been. I don't wanna be somebody that's putting a sugar coat gloss on things. I wanna be somebody that like understands that things are hard, but also can understand like a sugar coat gloss on shit, if you bite into it, it's still shit with some sugar on it, right? I wanna just like understand that things are hard, things can be difficult, but you can also find whether it be art, people, relationships, community, the things, that make you be that much more hopeful, make you think that maybe you can see your thing. So sorry, that's a long rant, but that's, that's what the whole study was for me in that moment. Just a small little thing when I felt very adrift, very unmoored, I was like, wait a second, there is power in stories and God knows I can't play a goddamn guitar and I didn't know how to write yet, but it, I figured I could maybe figure that out easier than I could figure out an instrument. <laughs> and that's where I went from there. And, and I also think the hold study um, is a good intro to another big part of your book, 
and something that I really enjoy about you is your love of bars. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you write about it so interestingly, though, that like you had an alcoholic father growing up. And I feel like all of those memoirs from the 80s and 90s uh, were kind of like, well, drinking then is bad. <laughs> Yeah. And um, if you're going to get your shit together, um, there's no room for that. And you found comfort and safety in bars. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that. 100%. I mean, listen, it's not giving too much away to say that in the book, there's a line. And I say that I want to be very clear because this book has started a lot of conversations with my family and we'll get to that. But like, I love them very much and they've been supportive in a way that a lot of people who write books like this don't get. So I deeply appreciate that. But I'm gonna say one of the lines in the book is it's the God's honest truth. I might be the only son of an alcoholic, but like my father better when he drank. Yeah. The, the memories I like, you know, it's <laughs> it's it's it, the memories I have of those moments are of real connection. Um and so I do, I do realize that, that there is something different in that for me. And um, it took me a long, a long time to examine that. And what really helped, to be honest, was therapy. Something mm -hmm. I haven't done, you know, I've probably done it about three years now. I'm working on it. Shout out, Dr. Jenny Kaufman. She's the best. <laughs> We're still working. She would be very much, she doesn't like, any kind of like good bad situation so or or the word should uh but through her and some incredible conversations like deeply 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 guided this book and one of them was she was the first person to point out to me she was like isaac do you realize you have this story of home you have this story of the church you have the story around places that are maybe seen by most people as safe spaces, those are the hardest ones for you. The stories of church, my home, are maybe not the safe spaces that I thought they were. And then stories about zeitgeist and the armory kind of are. And so for me, bars in general, for me feel like little escape hatches. And when I say bars, I really do mean like quiet bars. Of course, sometimes they get loud, gregarious, et cetera. But I'm not talking about like, you know, clubs. I'm talking about like little slices of spaces where for me, what it means is you can slip away for just a moment. You can be anonymous for just a moment. But then when you find that bar, like I did in Zeitgeist, it's not just about slip, slipping away or disappearing. Then you find real connection. Then you find real community. Then you find chosen family, for lack of a better word. And that's, I think that's what happens when you have a home that's not the place you get to go back to. Um, I moved around a lot as a kid too. So you find these touchstones, these places that you know are actually permanent. Per I'm sorry, permanent. And those places become this newfound space that you get to go back and visit. And that's what Zeitgeist is for me. Like it's still there. And when I go back to San Francisco, that's one of the first places I go to. And of course I know some of the, like some folks are still working there, but some people don't know me from nobody. But for me, it just feels so beautiful to be in that space, like a church. And that means so much to me. Yeah. And Isaac, I feel like 
you really do have a distinct portion of your life of your book set in San Francisco, where I, I feel like you did a lot of figuring shit out, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your various careers in San Francisco. Well, so there's, the, I mean, that's a, that's the thing is I've been working since I was 12 years old. So there's a lot, and that's what's really funny. Like as reviews come out and like, this is the thing, this is the beauty of writing a book. People connect with it and they have their own memories or their own thoughts. Like whatever I'm picturing when I write this has nothing to do with pe what people who are reading it picture, right? We have our own template. And that's, that's why I love writing in general is just like, as somebody who's also a huge reader, I understand that this is like a two person art form. Actually, I mean, let's be honest, it's much bigger than that. A lot of people help the book get made, but at the end of the day, it's the words on the page and it's the person reading them. And that's where the magic happens. And for me, multiple folks have asked at this point, like, well, you've done so much. And the fact of the matter is, is I've actually kept a lot of my jobs out of this book. <laughs> like those are like, what I thought would be the most interesting jobs to people, but somebody asked me recently, they're just like Buzzfeed, The Rumpus, McSweeney's, A26 Valencia, none of that's in here. Yeah, you don't even get into that. No, and, but in my opinion, it's just kind of like, nobody wants to read an essay of somebody being like, oh, look at this cool thing that happened. You know, like, like you want there to be tension and you want there to be mistakes and you want there to be conflict. And so for me, don't get me wrong, I'm very proud of the, the work that I did there. But for me, the jobs that were of the utmost interest to me were that hotel that I mentioned in the, in the, in the whole study essay. And why is that? Well, we were stealing a boat at the time, you know? <laughs> is the work that I did at Zeitgeist. Well, why? Well, for a plethora of reasons, most of which, just for the record, aren't even in the essay. And my work at the army, which again is a very complex story. And I'm just gonna say it, which is that um, I worked in the porn industry. I was a performer, I was an actor. That's not a story I've been very public about. It's not something I wrote about. And for a long time, it's because I spoke with people who I love and respect in that industry, who are incredible activists, who are incredible advocates, who have years of experience in it. And for me, it was very much a 20s job, which I try to tackle in that essay, which yeah. is very much like there was no big moment of revolution. It's just like, just like any other job you get in your 20s. I did it for a little bit, I, mm -hmm. I bounced out. And so for me, it's important that activists, sex workers rights, um, writers, and just like, so there's so many voices in this very complex industry. And so I want to highlight them and point to them to talk about it much more eloquently than I would. Because what I have is this small, small story, but why I wanted to put in the book was it came out of this conversation. A long time ago, I talked with a good friend of mine who's, who's in the piece, Lorelai Lee, and I talked about writing about it in Lorelai Lee. And we, you know, we, we had just this very thoughtful conversation about it. She's like, look, and because she's a writer herself, right. she's like, I'm never going to tell somebody not to write something. She's like, but, but again, I think, and at that time I was an editor, I had a platform. She's like, I think the right thing is actually to try and raise other voices, which is something I've tried to do my entire life. That's, that's what you do, Isaac. That's what I, it's what I've tried to do. 
they and I, because we're friends, have have stayed in touch. I love them so, so much. And, and Lorelai has been a lodestar with all of this. They and I have these conversations where, okay, let's hear more of the story. They were just very welcoming to looking at a piece. And then I send it to them. And then they were just so encouraging. And one of the things they said was, I think this is the time where it's important that you talk about the way, like it, it's important that it almost feels like not that big a deal. And I don't know if I'm eloquently saying, because LL is much smarter than me. So they probably said it better, but that was the main. And so with their blessing and, and, and of course running that essay by other people that are mentioned in it, that's when I felt comfortable putting it out there because that's what the armory was for me. And also that's what Zeitgeist was for me. San Francisco was a place I don't think it's so much that I figured myself out. I think it's that I figured out how people can come together, mm-hmm. be a community, love each other, support each other, and the magic that can come out of that. And that's not to say, just to be clear, that any of these spaces or places I'm talking about are perfect. It's more to talk about the relationships that I've built within them and how I've carried them in my life. I love that. So yeah, th- there, are, th- there are a lot of facts about your life that I didn't know. I I said to my husband, Josh, at one point, yeah, like there's the chapter in which you worked in the porn industry, but the real surprise was that you climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. (laughs) How come I never knew that? Uh, Listen, here I am telling you, I'm telling you right now. So uh, like 2% to two people of your listeners will know this, but now I run a walking blog. It's called Walk It Off. And what's kind of hilarious to me about that right now is that I thought it was this new thing I was thinking. Like, don't get me wrong. I don't think I invented walking. I know a lot, but like <laughs> in my mind, I was like, ooh, the, I started to walk 20,000 steps a day during the pandemic. And now I want to talk to people. Oh, I figured something out. And looking back on it, it's like, no, my, my father, my father loved to walk. When I was a small child, it was free. That's the thing about it. It's free. So he would take me up and we'd go on these giant hikes in the White Mountains in New Hampshire. And so we think we're growing and we're changing. And that's true, we are. But also there are these weird blueprints. I mean, that's a part of the book too, right? I talk about how I moved out to the West Coast because I thought I was like doing this brave new thing only to find my parents had both done it in their 20s too and I only found it out later but so anyways that's it's it's funny to me about walking is this it's it's become much more of a center focal point of my life as I get older and I now have to accept that that was very very much true of my father but so the Kilimanjaro story is very close to me for a plethora of reasons but one is that it really encapsulates something which is that my half brother who's my mother's son and my half sister, who's my father's daughter, now have all, they all have children. And that is what's bringing our family together. And what's incredible about it is that my parents, who were doing their goddamn best, but were, I'm just gonna say it, pretty shit parents, are the world's best grandparents. And so it's beautiful to kind of watch them evolve and change. But this, I'm 39 now. That took place 10 years ago. 
So this is, I'm trying to give my sister credit where credit's due, hmm. which she is the person. I was estranged from my family at that point. I hadn't been home for Thanksgiving. I hadn't been home for the holidays, Christmas. I hadn't been home in a long, long time. And it was my sister was like, hey, do you want to go climb Mount Kilimanjaro? Because she's done well for herself. She had the money. And I was like, yeah. And then she was like, oh, just by the record, dad's coming too. And she, that was a building block. I didn't even realize. And just for the record, as you know, because you've read the piece, but for those listening, there's no giant conversation that happens during that walk. There's no, oh, beautiful, ah, me and my dad standing No, we're all like stressed and tired and nothing really happens that's beautiful. But in hindsight, in my life story, not the book, but in my life story, I can see how my sister just that, that was a cornerstone moment for her off of which she has built something beautiful, which is our family coming back together. And I'm just a participant in that. I'm not the main, like my sister, that's her art, is that she's done that. And so now my family, Thanksgiving, it's at my brother's house. And there's no, and cause he has multiple parents, like there's our, what I always say is we're more of a family shrub than a family tree. But there's no, hey, you can be here at this time, but so-and-so will come the next day and do that. No. My brother on Thanksgiving, show up or don't. My sister on Christmas, show up or don't. All the grandparents have to show up or not, no matter who's divorced from whom. And it's been incredible and so inspired to watch that happen. Yeah, I feel like I now see you constantly going to visit them and um, enjoying unclehood so much. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, we... Uh, it helps that those kids are just phenoms. They're just smart and incredible. Um, but no, it's, it's also opened up for moments of real connection. And that's another thing that's not in the book. Don't get me wrong. Real connection with my parents, real conversations that are ongoing, but also with their ex, you know, the, the opening of the book, my parents were married when they had just the different people. I knew those different people back when I was young. Of course they were around, but then for a very long time, they were not. But now they're back in my life. You know, don't get me wrong. We're not calling each other once a week, but they're <laughs> around like in my, and I am catching up with them and I'm learning things about them and learning things about my own life from when I was much, much younger through their eyes. And that's been a, a blessing. I love that. And I love the way you can revisit and I'm talking in the book now specifically, that the final essay in the book really does um, put things into perspective. Because of course, no, you don't have a neat bow on the ending, but it, it's an Isaac Fitzgerald story. And so the ending is going to, I'm making an up motion <laughs> at you. Um, you know, not maybe not uplift, but give you hope. No, yeah, that's okay. I, I will even take uplift. Maris, I do just want to say like, you are, I because I held it back. I held it back the whole interview. I hope I did okay by not flipping this. But I just want to say your taste in books is exquisite. Your <laughs> read of books is so incredible and so thoughtful. And so you have to understand how kind of mind blowing and like the world folding in on itself it is to me to actually be on this podcast, to actually get to talk to you about a book that you have now read 
that you connected with and it means so much to me and I just want to say and you know you can you're the boss you're the god we're in your universe so you can cut, cut this if you want but I can't wait for yours Thanks. I cannot wait for yours and that is the other thing I will say about this is you and I have been in this industry for a long time and we've seen a lot of different aspects of it but the stories that you have and the way that you're going to write about them and the insight that you are going to bring is going to be phenomenal. And I'm so excited for it. Thank you, Isaac. I had a feeling this might end in a pep talk, but I'll take it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, he's flipping me the bird. I'm uh, not! No, I was. <laughs> I was. Um, Isaac, before we go, please, as, as you and I are both want to do, recommend some books for us. Oh, I got you. Okay, one, Night of the Living Res by Morgan Taltley is so, so good. Like, believe the hype. I know, like, that's me bringing, like, the number one book everyone's talking about this summer, but believe the hype. I love it for so many different reasons. One is that I see stories of my own life reflected in the pages. Two, it's just, I'm a sucker for like a linked story collection. Like that's just my vibe. I don't know if it's <laughs> what generation I'm of, but it's so, so well done. But at the top, like one, it's just incredible storytelling. It's, it's reminiscent for me of like Dennis Johnson. Um, you don't have to take my word for it. Again, many other much more brilliant people have praised it. But what I love about it is it's also from a native writer who's telling a story that's a lot different from a lot of the other aspects of native life that you've read and as a New England boy somebody writing to you from Maine in that situation and a reservation of Maine just means the world to me and also just like a phenomenal human being so thoughtful so that's absolutely one of them uh, another book that means the world to me that I haven't gotten to praise as much as I would like mainly because you know how it works when you're like hyping a book up you have to like write essays or like maybe do book recommendation lists but this book gets recommended so much that multiple editors on different lists that I've been trying to build I've been like well you can't mention it because it was mentioned last month which is what this book deserves but please let me do it here on the Maris review Jasmine Ward's Salvage the Bones is just that book changed me. And of course, we all know Jasmine Ward is phenomenal. You should read everything she's written. But that book for me, I was reading it. And I, this isn't bullshit. This isn't trying to tie it neatly into this podcast. I was reading it when I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. It's the book that I took with me while my dad wasn't talking to me. And I didn't have the courage or the guts to bring up the things that I wanted to bring up. I was sitting there reading that book and what it meant to me. At that point, obviously now I've been down in the Gulf Coast area, I've been down to Louisiana and the New Orleans area and all the places affected by Katrina, but at the time I hadn't. So it was a rare, rare thing for me to, to explore this new place through this fiction, through this storytelling, but see so much of my own experience, which is to say living in the woods, living poor, reflected back at me. So that book, means the goddamn world to me. And I love her so much. And she's also just such a brilliant, wonderful person. And then the last book I'll leave you with is the one that anybody that follows me will be like, oh yeah, this motherfucker mentioned this book again. But if you're thinking that and you haven't read it yet, pick it up, which is Brees, which is Brees de Jay Pancake. 
The Collected Stories of Brista J. Pancake by Brista J. Pancake. And again, same thing as with Jasmine, which is I've never been to Virginia, but that was a book my father gave it to me. So at a very young age, I'm reading it. I don't know much about life, but I do know that the stories, even though they're Virginia, West Virginia, places I'd never been in, the, in that moment in my life, they were reflecting back on me a story of like trailers and hunting for food and all these things that I knew about, but I'd never seen on the page. Cause up until that moment, I'd really just been reading like kind of old dead white men. And like the, here was a story collection that felt new, it felt present, it felt fresh. Um, so it just meant the world to me. And I've given out more copies of that book than ever. And I, I, I continue to do it to this day. Those, those are the books that really, I mean, as you know, so many books, it takes, it takes a village of books to raise one book. But those sure are does. really mean a lot to me. I love that. Thank you so much, Isaac. Dirtbag, Massachusetts, a confessional. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.